Thomas Aquinas' theory of the knowledge of Christ may seem to have little relevance for modern historical critical study of the figure of Jesus of Nazareth. In his mature work, represented in Latin by the third part of the Sumo Theologiae, Aquinas presents the knowledge of Christ in a fourfold descending perspective from the highest forms of knowledge to the most basic. He begins from the divine wisdom that Christ possesses as God and examines three modes of human knowledge. The immediate vision of God that Christ possesses in his human soul, the infused science that Jesus possesses as the most perfect of the prophets, and the acquired knowledge that Christ possesses as man in virtue of the human nature that he shares with us. Aquinas' account stems originally from the Chalcedonian principles of Christological doctrine. The approach might be broadly characterized as the descending Christology, insofar as the deity and divine wisdom of the Lord are presupposed, and his human acquired knowledge is affirmed just insofar as he is essentially human. Meanwhile, the beatific vision and the infused science of Christ are interpreted as grace, given to his human nature in view of his human actions on behalf of our salvation. It is due to his beatific vision and his infused prophetic knowledge, for example, that Christ as man is able to know perfectly who he is as the Son of God and who the Father and the Holy Spirit are, and to reveal them to us and to interpret Scripture authoritatively, foretelling his own passion and resurrection prophetically, and instituting the Church and the sacraments effectively. In methodological contrast, the modern historical critical study of the figure of Jesus of Nazareth makes use of a number of normative principles that stem from the Enlightenment era, among them a presupposition of the historical homogeneity of natural causes. That is to say, the causes of human experience and consciousness for all persons at the time of Jesus, including Jesus himself, should be understood against the backdrop of and in continuity with the language and concepts and symbols of Second Temple Judaism. These, in turn, should be understood in continuity with the predictable natural occurrences and causes we experience in the modern scientific era. So, for example, apocalyptic elements in the culture of the Judaism of the time of Jesus should be employed to explain Jesus' imminent expectation of the kingdom of God, but this need not mean that there is any such thing as an eschatological occurrence in reality. Likewise, the New Testament portraits of the figure of Jesus should be understood as human literary artifacts and explained in light of their cultural setting, the theological vantage points of their authors, and their intended uses for historically situated human communities. This need not imply that they are inspired or that the portraits of Christ they present must correspond to who Jesus of Nazareth really was ontologically. It follows from this that the portrait of Christ found in the Gospels might be very different from the real Jesus of history. We might notice the contrast these two methodological approaches represent. If Aquinas' presentation of the infused science of Christ seems to bespeak a knowledge derived immediately from God and therefore out of time, or from all eternity, so to speak, about his regarding his divine identity, the modern study of Jesus tends to construe his consciousness by ascetic reference uniquely to the imminent and limited horizon of his age. Pressed towards extremes, one account readily emphasizes the divine origin of Christ's message and its universality for all ages, but does so to the potential exclusion of his historical particularity as a first century Jew. While the other account seeks to identify the historically particular and limited character of Jesus' aims and self-understanding within the context of Second Temple Judaism, but does so to the potential exclusion of his profound soteriological intentions 
in their universal scope. In this paper, however, I will, I will argue that these two approaches, while really distinct, need not be construed in opposition to one another. On the contrary, a nuanced appreciation of Aquinas' doctrine of the human knowledge of Christ may permit us to assimilate many of the legitimate aspirations of modern historical Jesus studies, while retaining still a high doctrine of the infused knowledge of the Lord as the greatest of the prophets. To make this argument, I will avert to the Thomistic analysis of the knowledge of Christ. However, in order to engage the contemporary question of Jesus' historical understanding, I will invert the order of Aquinas' descending perspective from higher to lower and proceed in the opposite direction. Beginning from a consideration of the acquired knowledge of Christ, I will seek to show that the historicity of the mode in which Christ learns and expresses himself as human is compatible with both implicit and explicit forms of universal reflection. In the second section, I will consider the habitual infused science of Christ within the context of his historically situated acquired knowledge. My aim is to show the potential compatibility of a traditional theology of the infused science of Christ with what is best in contemporary historical studies regarding Jesus of Nazareth as set against the backdrop of his epic. Ultimately, the balance of this Thomistic perspective is rooted in the realism of biblical faith itself, or so I claim, and the principles of Chalcedonian dogma, which affirms both the true historical humanity of God incarnate and his distinctive human graces and privileges as the man who, unique, who, who uniquely is the Son of God. So now I will turn to the first section on acquired knowledge. Aquinas is generally thought to be the first 13th century scholastic doctor to posit the existence of naturally acquired human knowledge in Christ, as opposed to uniquely infused knowledge. He did so based on the simple principle that Christ is fully human and that being human entails having an agent intellect by which we derive knowledge progressively from the senses, a claim that is of course derivative from Aristotelian philosophical anthropology. This form of knowledge allows us to learn gradually of the essence of things, such as what a human nature is that is common to all men, but it also entails learning in and through a particular sensory mode, which entails our animality. This animality is not only individual but corporate, that is to say, we learn from and with others within a broader political community and culture, which we are typically deeply dependent upon for our education in various ways. Here we should note some basic philosophical points that are per pertinent to a theological consideration of Christ within his historical context. First, while our acquired conceptual knowledge always pertains to, to in, some, uh, in some way to the universal, it is al also always dependent on the external and internal sense powers. The latter include the imaginative power and sense memory, the synthetic common sense which collates diverse phantasms from diverse senses, <coughs> Thank you. the passions and cogitative sense which both entail affective reactions or attractions to object of knowledge. In other words, we, as we come to acquire knowledge of realities external to us, we simultaneously imagine sounds and words that act as phantasms of support for our spiritual insight and conceptual grasp of things. Second, as Aristotle noted already in the De Interpretatione, there is a kind of triangular reference of words to concepts and of concepts to things, insofar as the conventional significations of language 
denote the non-conventional natural concepts of the mind, which themselves refer to the non-conventional natural realities that language signifies. At the same time, we can qualify this claim in two ways. First, we, we grasp reality largely through the stimulation of linguistic naming processes, both the formal and informal methods by which our culture educates us. I mean, clearly our parents point at things, and when they point at things and name them, we begin to acquire phantasmal habituations about how to name those things, even if we're naming realities that are known in other cultures through other linguistic systems and images. Language not only denotes, but also draws our discrimination, discriminating attention to various facets of reality. Second, the realities denoted are not only purely natural, but largely artificial. Many external realities we perceive and name are themselves at least partially informed by processes of human ethical and artistic freedom, such as objects of art, artisanal objects, but also customs of religion and philosophy, politics, and ethics. Many human symbols and forms of conventional reference are clearly understood only once one has a sufficient knowledge of the ambient culture and its references and functional symbols in a given time and place. Finally, even if we emphasize the reality of the knowledge of essences and the universal, natural, and ethical insights that are inevitably present in each human mind and every human culture, so-called, you know, common human knowledge of reality, common natural law, ethical systems that are coherent, with convergent with each other, we must also recognize there are cultures in which the degree or intensity of such insight differs in a given realm of understanding, and there are vastly different degrees of moral insight or ignorance present in distinct cultures over time. We could also talk about degrees of mathematical insight or scientific learning. The point of my reflection to this point is not to suggest that all forms of knowledge are inherently determined by their cultural linguistic setting, so that all claims to knowledge should be construed as culturally relative, whatever that might mean, but only that they are truly qualified or conditioned by, uh, it, by it in a variety of ways, both with regard to the modes of acquisition of that knowledge and to some extent with, with regard to the objects of knowledge that are readily available or inaccessible in a given culture. We should not expect first century Jews to be concerned with 6th century BC Confucian philosophy or 20th century Einsteinian theory of relativity. This conditioning of our universal form of knowing is both culturally individuating and essentially human, i.e. proper to all human beings, just as material individuality, though distinctive to each person, is also abstractly considered an attribute of what it means for any human being to be human. Like embodiment, the cultural mode of acquisition of our knowledge is not an effect of our fallen human condition Pace origin and Plato, but simply of our, of our characteristically animal nature with its distinctive mode of rationality by which we learn spiritually through the senses collectively and across time and place. What follows from this reflection theologically in our consideration of Christ? First, we may say that there is a, a certain culturally limited form of knowledge present in every human knower. Each of us speaks a particular language, language or range of languages and acquires knowledge within a given horizon of time and place in the context of the available patterns of reflection and debate that typically shape the thinking of a given culture. Christ is no exception to this general rule. If God truly became human, then in his human life the Word incarnate not only acquired knowledge but also spoke and thought through the medium of the language and symbols of his epic set against the complex Judaic and Hellenistic backdrop that such language and symbol, symbols 
presupposed. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that Christ was unable to speak in, in overtly universalistic terms about the human condition or the meaning of all that exists, for clearly he was, as were his contemporaries for that matter, think of St. Paul. But I am saying that there, are there were delimiting features of human cognition that were part and parcel of the reality of the Incarnation. In the words of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this human soul that the Son of God assumed is endowed with the true human knowledge, as such, this knowledge could not in itself be unlimited. It was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time. This is why the Son of God could, when he became man, increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can only learn from experience. This corresponded to the reality of his voluntary emptying of himself taking the form of a slave. It follows from this perspective that we need not argue that the historical Christ, by virtue of his human perfection, must have been able to acquire natural knowledge of any possible intellectual subject matter available to any human person throughout time, such as knowledge developed in the 19th and 20th century through the experimental sciences. Christ did possess extraordinary insight into the human condition, in part from his infused science, and this in turn must have had reverberations upon the development of his acquired knowledge, as I will note further on. Likewise, due in part to the extraordinary grace that Christ enjoyed in his human intellect, we need not attribute any noetic error to the mind of Christ. The limitation of knowledge by circumstances of time and place is not equivalent to and need not entail the presence of intellectual error. There is therefore a kind of perfection to the acquired knowledge of Christ, However, this perfection in its acquired mode should be understood as one that is culturally situated and that it expresses itself intelligibly within the context and against the backdrop of the language and symbols of Second Temple Judaism. Second, understood in a theological light, the culture in which Jesus of Nazareth lived was unique because it was in various respects the product of a supernatural prophetic revelation originating in the patriarchal Mosaic epic following down through to the time of the monarchy, the high prophets, and post-exilic redaction of the biblical texts. Biblical revelation is ultimately of divine origin, but it is also mediated through a vast mosaic of human authors, traditions, and interpreters, and thus makes use of precisely the fabric of human customs, language, and symbols we have alluded to above. This is of capital importance because Jesus of Nazareth clearly appealed to and actively interpreted in quite original ways the tradition of biblical revelation that preceded him. What this means is that just as we can study the books of the Bible simultaneously as fonts of divine revelation and as products of human agency in a given time and place, so also we can analyze, for lack of a better term, the theology of the historical Christ insofar as it is, a, it is an especially inspired, theologically climactic, human interpretation of the Word of God. Jesus is, after all, a human interpreter of the Scriptures, as is Paul or John, or the, letter of, the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Modern biblical scholars often examine in some great detail Jesus' interpretations of Jonah, or his readings of the second Isaiah passages, or of Daniel, or his particular eschatology or his teachings on divorce, or his interpretations of the Psalms of David, they do so against the backdrop of the Judaism of his time, in part so as to underscore the originality of Jesus of Nazareth, the aims of his ministry, and his claims to authority. 
The point I am making is that this act of locating such teaching within a particular historical context is not opposed to the idea that Jesus is the Lord, God of Israel. If God became human, it is also normal that this man who is God should be himself an active human interpreter of the meaning of the Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature of the Bible, and should, as man in his human historical consciousness, see himself indicated in Old Testament prophecy. That interpretation is aided and guided by the presence of infused science or prophecy, to be sure, as we will return to below. But the higher illumination of prophecy in the mind of Christ need not exclude the fact that he is a genuinely human agent, actively engaged with the living tradition of Judaism that he acquires knowledge of in and through his experiential life as a first century Jew. So let me turn now to the second part of the talk on infused science, its nature and economic function. There can be little doubt that the four canonical gospels each ascribe extraordinary forms of knowledge to Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, these descriptions are so prevalent, thematic, and intertwined throughout the narratives and instructions of the gospels that these texts might themselves appear virtually unintelligible or as mere fragments of texts, were we to, by violence, as it were, extract from them every in instance of the appearance of such extraordinary knowledge. Jesus reads hearts and can speak with accuracy of the faith or of the judgment present in a given person's mind. He interprets scripture not as one who is seeking its meaning, but as its authoritative and final arbiter. He foretells the future, including his own rejection by the religious authorities of Israel, his public torture, death, and resurrection. He is aware that he has the power to perform miracles prior to the action of doing so. He gives an account of the nature of the eschaton, the final judgment, and the life of the world to come. He chooses 12 disciples to prolong the spiritual effects of his kingdom and commands that they celebrate the sacraments, which he institutes for the future life of the church. More generally, he seems to know what the human being is and to exhibit little surprise scandal, or exertion of understanding in the face of human ignorance, weakness, or betrayal. In his intellectual and moral self-possession, he appears to remain somehow spiritually uncompromised by these features of fallen human existence. It is, of course, historically speaking, possible that all of this knowledge gently exhibited by Christ in his radiant holiness and majestic humility is itself purely the product of post-Paschal authors and consists of retrospective projections back upon the historical Jesus artificially for theological reasons. Post-Paschal theologumena, all the way down. Nevertheless, there are both historical critical and distinctively theological reasons to reject this view. On the merely rational historical critical level, and this is a, maybe a, an amateur claim, uh, <coughs> We may note that there exist no very close literary par parables in ancient Greco-Roman or Judaic literature to the figure of Jesus as he is portrayed in the four Gospels, insofar as he exhibits there a prophetic capacity that is not merely received from time to time but possessed habitually and exercised freely from his own person. This portrait has a basic originality that derives from within the early Christian community and not as a mim mimicking act of reference to a pre-existent model. The four canonical Gospels, however, are not merely the product of one person, nor the singular work of a group of redactors. Uh, the creation we could uh, 
explained through a conspiracy theory, but bear the marks of distinct literary origins by individual authors who conveyed authoritative traditions preserved in communities that pre-existed each of these authors or that they accompanied, that's to say the communities they accompanied, Given the multiple attestations to the infused science of Christ from independent sources, their early origin and authority in the early church community, and their uniformity of theological content despite their heterogeneity of style, it is reasonable to conclude that accounts of the extraordinary knowledge of Christ date back to the earliest strata of Christian teaching and preaching from the primitive apostolic age. Historical skepticism, therefore, is not rationally warranted or I suppose I could say maybe more epistemologically, modestly, it's not obligatory. Furthermore, there is theological warrant to believe in the prophetic science of Christ during the course of his earthly life prior to the resurrection. A first reason for this has to do with the identity and mission of Christ as the Son of God. If the visible mission of the Son is meant to reveal to us the mystery of the Father and to be the prelude to the sending of the Spirit, then the Son must be the self-conscious revealer of the Father and the Spirit, as well as his own identity as the Son. He must work in unity with the Father and the Spirit as the, as the Lord, who is himself God, in his human actions and teachings, his miracles, in his foretelling of his suffering and his institution of the apostolic college. But of, Christ, but of course, Christ can only be such a revealer and teacher and redeemer in his human life among us if he enjoys as man the assistance of a particular supernatural knowledge of the mystery of God and the economy of redemption. A second theological reason stems from the principles of biblical ontology. Where the old Adam fell into ignorance and malice and moral weakness, Christ exhibited wisdom, charity, and sinless obedience. If this is the case, then the historical Jesus prior to his resurrection must have had the requisite moral insight to cooperate with the plan of salvation was to be effectuated through his obedience unto death and his subsequent glorification. It's necessary in this case to ascribe to the historical Christ a particularly acute supernatural insight of mind into the life of the virtues, as well as an inspired understanding of the divine economy. A final theological reason pertains to the fact that the miraculous capacity of Christ to read hearts or foretell the future is evidently intended in the Gospels to serve as signs of the divinely sanctioned authority of Christ. This is what the First Vatican Council called reasons of credibility, miraculous signs given to natural human reason to suggest the presence of authentic divine revelation present in the historical figure of Jesus. If the revelation itself suggests to us the credibility of supernatural belief in the authority of Christ based upon his extraordinary forms of insight, we should not seek to extract or obscure this dimension of the New Testament as if it were an, an embarrassment or an unwarranted addendum. On the contrary, the prophecy of Jesus of Nazareth is a feature of his existence that does make him distinctive in his own way within the broader context of the history of religions. What, though, is the infused science of Christ, and how ought we best to understand its mode of exercise theologically? Here Aquinas' treatment of the subject is characteristically helpful. Aquinas sees the infused science as a form of insight or intellectual understanding gained not through the ordinary natural processes of the ancient intellect acting through the senses, but is received directly from God and is prophetic in character. St. Thomas speaks here in Latin of the infused species or higher concepts 
analogous to, but not identical with angelic ideas. These are forms of knowledge that provide the soul with intuitive understanding of things hidden from other human beings and that lie outside the scope of natural human reason that the God might know, such as, or that God does know, such as the hidden moral and intellectual dispositions of another human being or future events. Such knowledge for St. Thomas does not do violence to ordinary human modes of understanding, but integrates into our ordinary knowledge or happens from within the midst of it and is manifest through ordinary human speech and symbolic expression as when the high prophets write about or enact through gesture in an ordinary human way what they have been given to understand in a higher mode by infused science. Three key controversies ensue whenever one approaches this subject. One pertains to the scope or extension of the infused science, a second to its actual occurrence at any given moment in the life of Christ, and a third to its compatibility with the historical limitations of Christ's acquired knowledge. We might characterize the maximalist perspectives here by a threefold claim that Christ as man knew through infused science all things possible for man to know, that he knew them actually at every given moment, and that he knew them in such a way that transcended and was unconditioned by this historically acquired knowledge. If we follow this line of thought, we may conclude, for example, that Christ at every given moment of his life was aware by means of infused knowledge of every conclusion of geometry that might be possible, every philosophical truth, every law of physics, as well as every contingent fact of history, and that he had an actual awareness of these realities at all times, albeit in a, mode, in a higher mode of awareness. Consequently, he was obliged in some sense to actively conceal or willfully mask massive portions of his knowledge in his ordinary life of engagement with others, even while revealing to them that limited portion of extraordinary knowledge that might pertain to their salvation and his mission as redeemer. I'm alluding here to Bonaventure in, without going into his views, but they're much more maximalist than Aquinas's. Aquinas offers helpful principles for an even treatment of this subject matter, especially by his characterization of the infused science of Christ as habitual in nature. The first observation to be made in this respect is that Christ is unique among the prophets according to Aquinas because he possesses the prophetic charism habitually and not merely actualistically. That is to say, while other prophets receive revelatory insight passively by moment at given times that are outside of their determination, Christ can turn freely at any given time to the extraordinary knowledge he possesses in a stable and habitual way. In this respect, Christ is not a prophet, according to Aquinas, but more than a prophet, due to the habitual mode in which he possesses the infused science. However, and this may seem paradoxical, but it's important, it follows from this in relation to the second controversy mentioned above, which I'm dealing with first, that according to Aquinas, Christ does not know all that can be known by infused science at any given instance in an actualistic way, as if he were always to know the weather in Seattle, Washington, in the United States in February of 2050 AD at any instant of his life. Rather, the power of Christ's extraordinary knowledge is actuated at given times, just as any habit lies in potency until it's actuated. This is in keeping with the human mode of Christ's infused science. Human beings pass from potency to act in their vital activities, including the activity of thinking and deliberately choosing. Christ's prophetic insights rise habitually within the horizon of his ordinary human way of knowing, and he has discrete prophetic insights regarding particular objects at distinct times and places. This leads us back to the first point of controversy noted above, that of the extension or scope of the infused science of Christ. 
Here, Aquinas makes a twofold assertion. On the one hand, Christ has the potency to know by infused science anything that, can, that he can know, uh, can be known to human beings throughout all of time. On the other hand, the actuation of this habit occurs only with respect to those things that are of fitting importance for Christ's soteriological mission and for the sake of the revelation he wishes to communicate to the human race. Both these points are significant. The latter point is evidently pertinent because it allows us to understand why Christ's extraordinary knowledge that is manifest in the canonical Gospels is always related to the revelation of his identity, his saving mission, and the mystery of the cross and resurrection. This knowledge is actuated in view of divine revelation and the salvation of the human race. It does not contain anything extraneous to this purpose, such as the truths of geometry or manifest judgments about the philosophical errors of logical positivism. At the same time, it is significant that Christ is, at, is able, at least in potency, to have infused understanding of all that is human. This is of decisive importance also eschatologically in the resurrected and glorified state of Christ, where his infused science may now have a much broader extension or purpose of range. We should not say, for example, that a military scientist who is praying today to Christ in the English language in his mind about the moral decision to make a nuclear warhead is himself unintelligible to the risen Christ in his human mind. On the contrary, this he must be in some sense precisely because Christ in his glory is able to, assert, to assist such a person with the gift of his grace and in the light of his own understanding. We might conclude then that Aquinas' characterization of the habitual character of the infused science of Christ allows us to understand both why the exercise of his prophecy should be of a limited, if utterly consequential kind, during his human historical life among us, and of a far more radiant extension in the mystery of the resurrection. As we see indeed in the New Testament itself, in the risen Lord's prophecies given to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, where he exhibits a kind of knowledge. It's communicated to John through a historical medium. It's also itself limited but it seems to be of a broader range than that which he might have possessed in his human life prior to the eschaton, to his resurrection. Finally, there remains the controversy of the congruity of the infused science of, of Christ with regards to his ambient culture and his own acquired knowledge. Was Jesus obliged to hide from his auditors the vast majority of what he knew overtly and explicitly, even while behaving as a human being in his own historical epoch? From the characterization we have offered, it should be clear that the infused science of Christ is actuated only ever from within the more foundational structure of his human acquired knowledge. You might say phenomenologically, in giving precedence to the ordinary human knowledge of Christ in the context in which he learned and understood and expressed himself. Otherwise said, it was precisely as a first century Jew in the epoch of Second Temple Judaism with its particular cultural linguistic tropes and symbols that God the Son made man acted as a prophetic figure in such a way as to teach the whole of the human race. His extraordinary knowledge was conveyed to his first century auditors and only through them to us, and this knowledge was conveyed through the medium of the language and symbols of his epic, including those of inspired scripture that were so deeply influential within his ambient pre-existing culture. One may of course believe that Christ knew many things he did not tell the apostles, and there is some clear evidence of this in the narratives themselves, for example, in Acts 1-7, where he says it is not the time for me to tell you all the things the Father has in store, etc. Christ shows a mysterious discretion in communicating the wisdom he possesses as the emissary of the Father, 
He even seems at times to speak cryptically. It's not to hide things he knows, but because of the directedness of the revelation. But as Aquinas notes, charismatic graces are intended primarily to help those who they are directed to, not the one who possesses them. This is true in the case of Christ's infused science. He communicates this higher prophetic insight in forms that those around him are capable of receiving with faith and in the idioms of his own era, which he freely in many ways reinterprets. Jesus' miracles and teachings are signs meant to allow us to perceive his own identity, soteriological mission, and eschatological judgment on the world. They were given to the people of his time and embedded within the cultural linguistic features of his historical epic that we referred to above. In other words, the infused science is superior to, but also exerted only from within, and in a way at the service of, the ordinary world of persons who learn by acquired knowledge and who are enlightened by the grace of faith. And in saying this, I'm not, of course, also, I'm not mentioning, but I'm not ignoring, that the revelation of Christ is in turn also conveyed and conducted through the mediums of the apostolic testimony with their own historically configured modes of speech and writing, albeit themselves also assisted by the Holy Spirit supernaturally in and through that very human process of the transmission of the truth which Christ gave them in a very, very human way, albeit helped by the higher knowledge he has in his prophetic insight. Conclusion then. Aquinas' treatment of the infused science and beatific vision of Christ, which I, I didn't mention the beatific vision, there's a longer version of this paper where I talk about that question, provide needed balance for Christian theology because they help us to understand the grace of the human mind of Christ, to explain how this grace is enrooted in his nature and therefore in the context of his human acquired knowledge with its cultural, linguistic, and temporally situated shape. Aquinas' affirmation of Jesus' human acquisition of knowledge allows us to understand how the Word incarnate would have learned from his experience within the context of his surrounding culture. This temporal specificity of the knowledge and language of Christ need not mean Christ's mission has less universality. On the contrary, the Word became flesh in first century Galilee and from that particular flesh, in that particular time and place, cast a light upon the whole world. As Jesus says prophetically about his own crucifixion, as the privileged place of the revelation of his divine identity, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Jesus could think about the meaning of the divine name of Exodus 3, 14 and 15, based on his natural acquired knowledge as a first century Jew. By virtue of his vision and his infused science, he also knew that he could apply this name to himself as one who is one in being with his Father. Christological realism requires that we hold the two affirmations together in unity, just as we must affirm both the true divinity and the true humanity of Christ. In this aspiration, the theological vision of the knowledge of Christ offered by Thomas Aquinas is of essential help for the future of a sound modern Christology. Thank you very much. Thank you both for your papers. Thomas Joseph, uh, in, the in the conclusion, you mentioned that you don't deal with the vision. Um, in some sense, I end up on your um, modern account of Aquinas' account of society very compelling. The vision is, is an interesting one for this particular conference because it really depends on how you make use of the information of John, the Gospel of John, and the John letter. So it's a real way in which we, how do we accommodate um, uh, information
communication from one set of documents and scriptures with the rest of the data in the New Testament. Well, it's, it's a huge question, and it's a great question, and I'll just say a couple of brief words about it. Um, the first thing I would say is I do think there are compelling reasons to invite the consideration of the idea that Jesus possesses the immediate vision of God, not faith, from other texts, including, for example, Matthew. I think that Jesus' knowledge in Matthew is fairly extraordinary. Even though the dynamic actualism of the Christ of Mark, uh, where he is immediately doing this, immediately doing that, it doesn't seem to pause with the requisite reflection of faith, because faith does, even though it's knowledge, it does imply ignorance or omniscience of the divine will in concrete contingent historical circumstances. And you don't see quite the same kind of seeking or reflection and deliberation in the Christ of Mark or Matthew, I think, that you might see in a person who's obviously living in the, in the darkness of faith. And you do see it with disciples, even if they're somewhat benighted because the Pentecost hasn't happened, etc., the crucifixion hasn't happened. I still think there's a natural human limitation in faith that characterizes them that doesn't characterize him. So, from a textual, literary point of view, at least, I think there is some reason to pose the question from outside of the Gemini material. That's an interesting and difficult conversation to, you know, that would be an interesting thing to pursue. The second thing I would just say is um, that we can't get around the, the deeper questions that emerge about whether Christ lived in the faith. Now, I think there are ways of thinking about Christ's faith totally compatible with the prophetic knowledge that I just talked about. John Kiktorell has a, a, a rather nuanced view of this that's you know, agreeable in many respects. But I do think there are interesting problems that arise if Christ had the faith. And they're not actually to be underestimated. The problem with affirming immediate knowledge is how you allow the phenomenology of this human understanding to be entirely, or you acknowledge the real historicity of his human phenomenological self-understanding. And I'm, I think you're going to have problems either way you go. And I think you have less problems if you think he has immediate knowledge and doesn't have the faith than if you has the faith. But I think you're going to have things to deal with either way. And so that's just an aside. The last thing I'd say is, the meta question for me is, is there a divine will in Christ? Because now this is not a immediate question, except really in John's Gospel, but I think it's a mediated question in the letters and the, the epistles and the, the, and the synoptics, that if Christ is the Lord, then the divine will is in him, and he does things with the Father and the Spirit through the power of God, and he knows it. And he does it in contingent circumstances, where he knows he can heal this man, and he, he knows what God is doing, and if that kind of high, immediate knowledge of the divine will is present in him in contingent circumstances, then I believe that that would be a, a good reason to think seriously about the, the beatific vision motif. But I do not want to minimize the difficulties. And I, don't, I definitely don't want to in any way deny or minimize the reality of the human historical knowledge of Jesus.
natural gas in the line of Jesus. Because according to your scheme, then Yahweh uh, get, uh, uh, sorry, Yahweh consequence that has remained in Jesus is suffering. Uh, the other two are just uh, uh, not. So uh, this consequences could lack or minimize what uh, the New Testament talk about the starts again. And so, uh, you know, so since there is uh, also Father Barucki close to you and uh, the Christology of the letter of the Hebrews, where in chapter 7 uh, uh, there is this dimension of learning the obedience of Jesus. Files talk about um, verse 5 Should I go first and maybe say something, Father? Okay. I mean, the first thing I say is my whole talk was an affirmation that he's learning. So I think I, I was pretty forceful on that. Um, so, I mean, I do think Christ learned, and of course, if he learns, Atonus is going to say the intellect engages the will. So his learning obedience, his, his will obeying the inner movements of the inspirations of the Spirit, is going to have to follow from his experiential learning. So I think that this account I'm giving here, that's not really where I see the issue. Or at least I think I could have a very rich acknowledgement of that truth of Hebrews, where I, I think you could pose a more you know, um, important, like a determinate, interesting question is about the greater natural gifts. Now, what are they? I mean, it's the freedom from death, the freedom from suffering, um, which is not present in Christ. It's the, it's the orientation of the emotions to be um, to be under the regency and, and to operate in and through the inner determination of the spiritual faculty. In other words, not to experience emotional disorder. Now, Aquinas says here that Christ could experience deep wells of sadness and anger, but that he doesn't, his treatment of the emotions of Christ I find actually quite compelling. Christ's emotions are not sinful, but sinfully disoriented. His reason doesn't become submerged in emotion in a way to treat others unjustly or unreasonably, but he has a vivid emotional capacity for suffering or reactivity. So his anger is, is a good anger, not an anger that stems from a, a disordered soul. And that's an anti-Stoic point in Aquinas. The anger is uh, a good passion at least as it's exerted in Christ. So we learn a lot about the healing of our passions by looking at Christ. The other thing that's important in the prayer natural gifts is that the soul is submitted to God in grace. And there I would say that um, it's pretty clear that scriptures teach that Christ is without sin. And I do believe there are lots of interesting reasons to argue about whether Christ could have experienced temptation or how he did. But I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not one. I do not want to say Christ sinned. I think God. If Christ is God and the Lord, He can't sin. And I think there are also compelling reasons to say that from the point of view of His capital grace as man. Parlo italiano per comodità, per opportunità. E per 
5-10 è un dittico in cui si compongono innanzitutto la figura di ogni solo sacerdote e poi la figura eh, del Cristo. Ogni solo sacerdote si dice che, preso tra gli uomini, costituito in favore degli uomini, cose che riguardano Dio, a un certo punto, e purtroppo questo non è molto capito, eh, si dice che ogni solo sacerdote può metrio a sentire a misura, viene di solito tradotto compassione per gli erranti e per gli ignoranti. Ora, padre Fedor eh, ci ha detto chiaramente che certi peccati, quelli compiuti a mano alzata, sono eh, inscusabili, ma soprattutto sappiamo dalla riflessione filosofica che l'ignoranza è inscusabile se è colpevole. Quindi il solo sacerdote è assurdo che compatisca secondo una giusta misura con l'ignoranza, non può. Io devo faccio un fraintendimento, ebrei, secondo me almeno, usa il linguaggio di Platone, che poi sarà ripreso anche da Plotino eh, e in parte da eh, Plutarco, tutti iniziano col P, eh, il linguaggio che vuole che se qualcuno è ingiusto, è peccatore, non possa essere metrios con la divinità. Il suo sacrificio è invalido, è inefficace perché la sua misura è il peccato umano e non la divinità. È esattamente quello che dice lei. Vedendo con l'accento sul fatto dell'ignoranza. È l'ignoranza che causa l'incapacità di essere adeguato alla persona che deve ricevere il sacrificio. Nel secondo pannello del dittico si riparla di ignoranza nei termini positivi, cioè di apprendimento. Ora, attraverso il passein, il passare la tappa eroica della morte, che è quello che Ebrei deve giustificare, perché il suo problema è giustificare la morte del Messia, attraverso il passema della morte L'umanità in Cristo fa un cammino di tipo iniziatico per andare verso il Telos e impara dal patire, questo è un luogo comune che risale alla tragedia greca, Pazzei, Pazzei, che cosa impara? Impara l'ascolto dal basso, l'Uppacore, ed è per questo che dall'alto Dio si volge verso il Cristo per esaudirlo, ex audio, es acuo, up acuo, ob edio, ob audio, obbedire. In un confronto chiaro tra il Messia e il Creatore che poteva liberarlo dalla morte e lo salva dalla paura, capitolo 2, e dagli effetti eterni, aionici, della morte, il Messia lui con noi, perché poi diventa causa di salvezza, aitos soferias aionium, per noi, se vi obbediamo, cioè se entriamo in quest'onda dell'ascolto, diventa causa di salvezza anche per noi, essendo condotto al Tedos ed essendo stato proclamato, sono sacerdote secondo l'ordine di Fisle, vale dire per le ore, per lo spazio di Dio. Grazie, professor Gavini. Grazie.
leggo eh, a proposito di questo testo di ebrei allora eh, è molto conosciuta forse l'ipotesi di Harnack che dice che nel testo manca una congiunzione che sarebbe che il Signore non è stato esaudito dalla sua riverenza e perciò è stato messo a morte allora possiamo trovare nella lettera agli ebrei anche a modo provocatorio sì, qualche testo che ci parli di quella donazione volontaria di Cristo la donazione volontaria nel capitolo 10 come commento a Salmo 40 eh, in quella volontà ne siamo stati salvati nel capitolo 5 c'è il termine eulabria che è molto spesso eh, anche questo parentese è un termine molto difficile del linguaggio peraltro difficile per noi Purtroppo con i testi antichi bisogna che tutti ci diciamo, anche con i testi dei teologi medievali, che loro parlavano e si capivano, noi abbiamo bisogno delle note, non c'è pezza, perché è passato del tempo. Allora, nel caso di, eh, dell'Euradria eh, si tratta eh, del giusto rapporto con la divinità. In realtà il termine significa prudenza. Oggi nelle Bibbia c'è, italiano, l'hanno messo per il suo pieno, abbandono in Dio, viene l'idea del caschetto non ha niente a che vedere con ciò, è di fatto la capacità di rapportarsi a Dio come Dio vuole. Siamo sempre nei termini dell'apprendimento. La sera prima del Kippur, il solito sacerdote stava sveglio tutta la notte perché le giovani sacerdoti dovevano leggere tutto il rituale perché non si sbagliasse. Se si sbagliava nel rituale tutto il popolo per un anno non avrebbe avuto i frutti della terra, eccetera. Ora, questa idea dell'apprendimento fondamentale dell'antichità, perché la verità è alezzeia, è ciò che il tempo non nasconde, quindi è necessario un apprendimento, questa idea dell'apprendimento diventa anche il sapere in quale modo corretto comportarsi con Dio, quindi la prudenza. Oggi ci è stato mostrato molto bene, tutti gli oggetti del tempo erano circondati da una potenza magica e terribile che trasmetteva la paura di fronte. Eh, il vero rituale non è quello di ogni sacerdote, che comunque rimane misurato sul peccato, il vero rituale è quello dell'ascolto, dell'obbedienza in Cristo e della vera e Thank you, Father, Father, for on the action of his son's absence and presence in the Gospel of John, and later to Richard Walker, these two scholars are outstanding speakers, so resist the temptation of going home and come back uh, by 4.30. Thank you very much.